So this is um, really felt like a very, um, a really lovely time. This retreat. I mean, I don't know if it's always felt like that for you, <laughs> but for me, it has felt really, really special. Actually, it's felt very lovely to have um, been together with a smaller group. Um, and with a group of practitioners that have really uh, held the form and held the depth of the practice and the stillness and the silence and I think it's really contributed to um, to a, a, um, an ability to for us all to deepen our contemplation of the Dharma and this is what I've been hearing in, in talking with people today and hearing what your experiences are. Um, and I feel, I feel very grateful for that. I, I, um, I often have a lot of resistance, I have to confess, even after all these years, to, to doing retreats, either doing them or leading them. Um, and I always feel like running away. Um, <laughs> which is harder to do when you're sitting in this seat <laughs> but that's the mind you know it does uh, it does resist but just working through uh, that, obs- that sense of obstruction it always feels so very worthwhile and also I'm very aware that it takes a certain amount of effort to do this practice for, for everyone, those supporting the retreat, those who create these centers that run on a shoestring. We just heard today that, you know, that, that they had a, the great profit last year of 148 or $9 or something, which gives you an insight into how tight it can be. Um, to do this work and yet it happens how many obstructions can come not only for us personally to to knock us away from the Dharma but how hard it is to ground this kind of work in in any culture I was talking about Avalokiteshvara the other day um, and and his head splitting into 10,000 pieces when he realised the enormity of the task Practicing in a in a culture that as had yet hadn't been acculturated to the Dharma. You know, so if we don't find it particularly easy, it's not like we're the first ones on the planet practicing the Dharma that has hasn't found it particularly easy. You know, it's uh, this, this awakening is is although it's always immediate and here and now. And ultimately, it's a recognition of our deeper, truer nature, the nature of how things really are. There are considerable forces that undermine and that sabotage and obstruct and delude and distract. So I think one needs to give oneself credit for even trying and even showing up and even putting the effort in again and again and being willing to do this work of becoming more realistic 
facing what usually most of the world is distracting themselves from facing ourselves as the Buddha said it's easier to face an army than ourselves I don't know about that but <laughs> but it gives you a sense of you know that uh, it's, this has always been considered challenging and I think it's just good to remember that so that we don't put ourselves down for not walking out of the retreat fully awakened <laughs> unshakably enlightened <laughs> and feel you know and or if we feel apprehensive about the challenges that we're going to face I think that's you know that's that's being again realistic but it's also however challenging this path can seem sometimes it is a doable path and in this I find a great comfort and great support that, you know, as was mentioned today, it's always about ultimately just what's right in front of us. Even if we're planning for the future or we're creating a project or whatever we're doing, it all springs, as the Buddha said, from this mind here and now. So if we can really remember that, that it's the best, the, you know, the better we can attend to here and now and be aware and awake here and now, the better for the outcome of whatever unfolds. The more conscious we can be about what becomes set in motion from our volitions and from our intentions and from our actions. And that we can trust, you know, we can trust that, you know, we've done the best we can. I notice when I get very dislocated and start getting overwhelmed and reactive and hurrying and having to get things done and pushed along, then I'm, I'm the least connected <laughs> uh, with a deeper sense and least, the least able to stop. And I think that's one of the most challenging things for us taking the practice back into the daily life is that, that there is such an imperative to keep rushing, to keep going. There's such a, a strong current that the whole culture is in. And I think it's so speedy now because of the, the technology that we are using. I mean, I, I still remember when you would write a letter and wait two weeks to get a reply mm -hmm. instead of getting 40 emails downloading or more every day that we all demand some sort of fairly immediate response mm. or, or the huge amount of information that we process every day from all over the globe. And it, it creates a, you know, it brings us into a virtual world that has this power to it and increases in some ways our disembodiment and our ability to really slow down and our ability to sense our environment. So this is all just how it is for, for many of us, myself included, working in the worlds that we now work in. 
And I think in, increasingly, as I've been mentioning, there's also a sort of a sense of intensity about the times we're in. When some of the stabilities, the world's always been unstable on some level, but some of the things that we might have uh, felt were dependable are clearly not quite as dependable as we thought, whether it be our economic system or the political systems or I was saying the other day what's happened in countries like Ireland or Greece, whether it's the availability of resources, whether now it's even the sustainability of our weather patterns, of our oceans and so on and so on. So this is a great increasing intense environment that even if we aren't engaging it, it will have an effect. As people awaken more and more to the seriousness of the circumstances that we're in, it will make people feel quite scared. Or people will become reactive. And and all of that will be in the, the, the environment or the field around us. Or crazy. So it's it's a more than ever. I'm not sure we have much. It feels like we have less luxury to dither. <laughs> you know, put things off. It feels like that this practice is maybe less of a luxury and more of a real necessity to maintain health and sanity and balance for the times that we are moving into. I think it's very, you know, everything that we need, everything that we really can, um, that is supportive to us, we can find in the Buddha's Eightfold Path, we can find in these teachings that we've been contemplating this week, the Four Truths, the Bodhicitta. But I think what's really valuable is finding ways every day, in a sort of routine way, to bring in our practice. Because one of the supports for this maintenance of inner stability, inner health, is this practice of really being present and really doing that in a sustained and habitual way. So that one designates a time and a place to sit. And it's not always easy to, to do because of this momentum and because of this pull of things that need to be dealt with right now. You know the urgency, but I find if I if I miss my sitting because of the urgency, I actually start to respond much less effectively. You know, and it's again, it's often that resistance, having to meet the resistance to stopping, but knowing it's absolutely essential. Sometimes I feel like if I, it's either mindfulness or death. <laughs> it's sometimes that critical. It sounds crazy. What well, you know, it's mindfulness or suffer. It's sort of like, you know, it's like, it becomes very clear at a certain point. And so having, you know, does even if it's just a short time, and, and it's, 
you know, 15, 20 minutes, half an hour, 40 minutes, an hour, whatever we designate to, to stick to that, so it becomes a, a habit. And I think that's almost one of the most important things we can do in terms of doing something every day. And whether that, that's supported by something like the bowing practice or the chants, all of these things that help take us into the zone, so to speak. And then when we do practice, to spend quite a lot of time working with this embodiment, with this breath, so it's really simple, so that one ha- gets a sense for cultivating some samadhi. It's often what we f- when we leave these retreats and we feel the loss of the holding, often what we're experiencing is a loss of some of this samadhi and gatheredness. You know, we just the mind starts to just get very coloured by all the all of the impact that's around us and from what's emerging from within our own patterning. So in, in daily life when things are very speedy, just or you know, just the momentum is finding time to pause and to sit and really return with the breath, with the embodiment, these things, simple things like the three <coughs> deepening breaths or the five deepening breaths really help to steady And then cultivating this inner listening, listening beneath the currents of what needs to be done and keep listening, what is authentic actually? What can I let go? What can I, it's like a a daily discipline almost. When when I first met Ajahn Chah, I was practicing at the time I was um, on a retreat when I was 19 outside of, of Oxford in the UK at a retreat centre and we were doing this these Goenka Ubakin retreats where they basically you sort of nail to the cushion you don't move all day mm. it's really really kind of crazily intense and um, I was addicted to them for those retreats for a while and um, I never particularly enjoyed them, but I kind of went for them. And you know, I was on one of these retreats, and Ajahn Jah had just arrived. It's his first 19, I think about 77 or so, 76. It's his first time in the West. 75, maybe. Anyway, 77, I think. It's the first time in, in, in the West, and he came into this retreat, he came to visit the centre because a Burmese couple, Buddhist, very devout Buddhist couple, owned this centre, actually. It was one of these old stately homes in Britain that they'd taken over. They'd left Burma in the, in the, just before the military junta took over in the 60s. And they had some huts at the back of this stately home where we used to go and do these retreats. So anyway, Ajahn Chah arrived, and I'd never really, you know, this was seeing this Buddhist monk, and he came with Ajahn Sumedha, his first Western disciple. They looked like they'd just arrived from another planet. You know, they were completely other somehow. And um, Ajahn Chah came into the room, and there was a statue of the Buddha in the corner. We didn't even know what that was, actually. We just stuffed it in the corner. (laughs) 
because <laughs> didn't really, I didn't even really have the sense of the meditation that I was doing was even particularly Buddhist. It was just, you know, it was, it was just meditation. Rajan Chah saw this Buddha and he just went up to it and he bowed. And I'd never seen anyone do that before, but it was such a, for me, it really was a complete teaching. I really mm. loved the gesture. It was like just something about the simplicity of this bow and, and letting go. And then that evening, he was giving this teaching um, outside of the retreat. So I actually left the retreat, which I wasn't supposed to do. But, it, but there was something about the presence of Ajahn Chah that was very dynamic, very free. And I went to this teaching. It was all in Thai being translated. I couldn't understand it. But when it was translated, it was so profound. I can't remember what was said. His dharma was so profound. It was very simple and very earthy. And I was listening to it, and I thought, wow, this is, this is really good. And this, this person really knows. I just felt that. I don't know what I understood, but somehow I felt that he was awakened in some way. My weird understanding that you know he was he was a he was very empty but very had a very strong presence. So I was, thinking, I was just listening and everything was said. I going oh this is so good this is really good and then at the end of the talk he said if you've been sitting here thinking this is good or this is bad you haven't been listening properly. <laughs> and I thought well, that's really good. <laughs> So he was talking about this listening, this listening beyond the reactivity of the mind and how we, we often don't really listening because we just listen to our views about what's happening and we're not really hearing what's happening. And there was another time when um, Ajahn Samoda, this is a little bit after the monastery started in England in the 1981, and Ajahn Samoda, the Westerner, who many of you know about, and um, or have met, and he um, he decided to take a group of Westerners of Brits over to Thailand to meet Ajahn Chah. And I think about twenty of them went. And then when they got to the monastery, there was a Western nun there who had converted strangely to a fundamentalist branch of Christianity. And when everyone arrived, she she started to try and convert everyone. To, to to this to this fundamentalist Christianity, and she started saying how Buddhism was bad and Ajahn Chah was the devil and it was you know it was and and people were quite agitated by this because they'd come to meet the great master and and Ajahn Chah bragged about this Western nun he didn't really realise at that point what she should happen for her. And then at a certain point, Ajahn Sumedha went to Ajahn Chah and started complaining about this nun and saying, you know, like, you've got to kind of get rid of her. It's terrible what she's doing, what she's saying. And Ajahn Chah listened to all of this and he just went, well, you know, Sumedha, maybe she's right. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it's like... Look at your mind. What is your mind doing with this stuff? You know, so it was Ajahn Chah. Keep looking deeper. Keep looking beyond one's reactions, because we think we know what's true, or we think we knows what what has happened. Or another thing, he would say, "My near." 
which means it's uncertain. It's always uncertain what's exactly going to happen or, or how things will unfold. And it's, that's very uncomfortable for us because we want to be in control, of course. The mind wants to be in control. It's hard to tolerate uncertainty. And it's not to say we shouldn't be able to skillfully guide things, but there's always the edge in every moment where it's uncertain. And this practice is about tolerating that, even opening to it, welcoming it, allowing it, because it's reality. And so we have some samadhi, if we have some focus, if we have some dedicated practice that helps us withstand the reality of life, then we'll be able to maintain some mindfulness in response, some centeredness, some gatheredness. So there's many different things, many different ways we can support our daily practice. There's so much out, I mean actually there's too much. There's too much on offer in the marketplace, it's overwhelming. You know, so sometimes it's just learning to get a sense of what works for us, that's like the foundation of what we do, what we can trust. It's not to say we shouldn't explore, but there's something about keeping the central themes of our practice and our practice fairly simple and doable so that we can, you know, we can deepen in that. And then not to be afraid, as, as Ajahn Chah would teach, you know, if suffering comes, to realize, and it will come, because as we become more open to the reality of life, we it will it, when we're less in denial, we're less projecting and blaming and repressing and shifting around this reality to realise it's an opportunity. This is how you know, for good or for bad, but this is how we develop. It's by being challenged, by meeting that which is difficult. This is what, you know, one of the brilliances of Ajahn Chah's teaching as well was to bestow courage. He always bestowed the sense of you can do it, even if you think you can't, that we can do it. Because it's always just this much, just what's present now, how is it now, if there's suffering, noticing and being with that now, the more mindfulness that we can apply, the more ability to look at what is genera how are we generating even more difficulty around this experience. And to investigate, to let be, to inquire, to keep with the awareness, so that one mixes awareness and contemplation the experience of suffering or challenge. And I think this is, you know, I think in my early practice years, this was one of the most helpful um, teachings for me, was this, to not fear 
the experience of challenge and suffering and to realize as one meets it more and more that it helps to, you know, over time, you know, at a certain point you realize something that would have just completely knocked you away and done you in, (laughs) that one is able to, to work with it and get through it a lot more quickly. In our work in South Africa, we've had, we've had so many different challenges. Some very severe betrayals of trust, some very different, difficult circumstances. Of, um, you know, which, which sort of dent one's faith in humanity sometimes. And I noticed that actually through being willing to just try and work and self-reflect and work through some of these difficulties that a certain strength starts to grow. You know, and, 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 and a capacity to, to uh, bear with difficulty and not take it quite so personally, not be quite so overwhelmed. So in this, in this way, this bodhicitta, this deeper deepening into the bodhicitta heart is, is a real encouragement to be really patient with the challenges that we're going to face in our life and to realize on some level they're part of our curriculum, they're part of what we will grow through. And then to balance that, the last thing I think I'd like to say, because there's many, many things and practices and supports that's available to us that you you know about and you can explore in terms of um, daily life practice, you know, different writings and teachings. But these are just a few of the things that have helped me. But I, I found, particularly because I found myself working with quite difficult circumstances. I don't know whether it's just my karma or what I get attracted to, quite intense circumstances, being monastic life or working in South Africa, all these quite difficult things that seem to happen to me a lot in my life, that it's been really important to also look at what is really resourcing, which is a term that was used a lot when I did my um, therapeutic training in England, what is really brings joy, what brings uplift, what brings connection, what brings poetry, what brings beauty, what brings happiness, what brings friendship, what brings faith, what brings confidence. You know, whether it's friends or nature or, or, or being with teachings and teachers and situations that help sustain and nourish, what is nourishing? And to find that not only in big ways, like when we go on the holiday, but to find that in everyday life, to take the opportunity to notice the beauty, notice the things that, that where there's, 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 you know, where there's joy and, and, you know, whether it's just the way a flower is, whether it's the way you know, the, the, the night sky or whether it's 
connection with a loved one, whether it's a conversation that we can savor, whether it's a cup of tea, whatever it is, but to really bring that, to really notice, you know, when the mind is, is buoyant, so that we have, it helps us to support us and contain and hold the struggles that we'll inevitably have. And then within all of this, as one of the great, you know, Ajahn Sumedho was really helpful in my path of practice as one of my teachers. He used to say, don't forget that we think we're going through life, through one experience after another. But in reality, in reality, life is unfolding in this awareness. We're not really going anywhere. We just always are where we've always been, in the immovable reality of our true nature, of this aware, present heart, is not bound by time and space. In reality, all that's happening is this movement of life unfolding. So the retreat started and it dissolved. It's this moment now and the retreat's about to dissolve. And a new form will, you know, the road and the travelling and the airports or whatever will unfold. And then home will unfold and then work will unfold. But then our deeper inquiry is what remains. What is always present. And it's that, it's when we start to taste that, when we start to move to that. That suchness here and now, that there's true stability true certainty, true peace. Even if the whole world, even if we he- we're still here, we witness the collapse of our ecosystems, we'll still be able to maintain our true refuge. And whatever life brings, more and more and more we, we reside and we know this knowing, this fundamental knowing of the heart and can rest there in this refuge, then whatever comes, happiness or sadness, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, health and sickness, will know the true place, true place of stability. It will, give, it will bring, it will make this practice worthwhile. That's what Ajahn Charles said when I met him when I was young. He says, good, he says, you're young, you keep practicing, the fruits will come. Just keep going. Don't worry about the fruits, just keep applying those moments of path activity, bit by bit. It's create, it will create the karma for the fruits to arise. Somewhere or another, nothing is wasted. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.